Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, Ford backs down. Our government is willing to rescind the legislation. So, 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 solidarity. The union representing Ontario education workers calls off its protest, meaning schools will reopen tomorrow. It comes after Ontario Premier promised to repeal legislation, making a strike illegal. When will they get back to the bargaining table? We'll talk to the union and a panel of Ontario MPPs. Then, Monday before the midterms. election isn't a referendum, it's a choice. I will probably have to do it again, but stay tuned. What are the stakes for tomorrow's crucial votes? We'll bring you full team coverage south of the border. Plus, a provincial prescription for health care funding. We need to make sure that more investments in health care ends up supporting the folks on the front lines. As you just saw, health ministers are in B.C. calling for an influx of federal cash. But the federal government wants a say on how it's spent. How will those ministers react? We'll talk to B.C.'s health minister coming up later on. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. I, again, am offering to rescind... Section 33, but only if they go back into the classroom. Let's get back to the table and let's negotiate a fair deal. So the standoff between Doug Ford's government and the province's education workers isn't over, but there are serious signs of hope tonight. Students could be back to school as soon as tomorrow. Here's how it all played out. In a surprise move this morning, Ontario Premier offered to repeal Bill 28. That's the new law making the education workers' strike illegal. It also imposed a four-year contract on workers. Now, to avoid court challenges, Ford's government also invoked the notwithstanding clause. After getting a written commitment from the premier, the union signaled they would end their protests, paving the way for students to return to class. Was today a win for the unions? And how will all of this impact negotiations going forward? Joining me now is Mike Hancock, the National President of the Canadian Union for Public Employees. Mr. Hancock, thanks for joining us. I'll get right into it. Your members will be back to work tomorrow, and the kids should also be back to school. When is the next negotiating session with this government? Well, we're ready today. Uh, our folks are here at the hotel. My understanding is that uh, officially the mediator will be back uh, in this hotel, uh, that the employer representatives will be here as well. So I think uh, in the morning around 10 a.m. is when bargaining will, will start up again. How confident are you in that bargaining, though, tomorrow with everything that we've seen so far? Well, today was a good day. Today was a, a day where, uh, you know, we're very proud to say that our 55,000 members in healthcare stood up uh, to this government. Uh, they stood up to probably the most significant legislative attack against workers that we've seen in this province and probably across the country. So we're, we're optimistic. We're hopeful that we can get a deal. It's what we've wanted all the way through this. Uh, you have to remember that uh, a week ago, it was a week ago yesterday, that uh, we were called in, into a meeting by the government where we were told that this uh, legislation would be uh, forthcoming. It would include a collective agreement uh, contract, which, uh, of course, we did not agree with. Uh, so we've had that hanging over our heads the last week when we tried to discuss things, when we tried to come to a contract. So now that that's gone or going, uh, we'll have an opportunity to, to really uh, get down to negotiating a good collective agreement, one that works for our members in education. 
I want to pick up on that. You say gone or going, but not gone. I mean, the Ontario legislature not sitting this this week. So there's goodwill there. That doesn't always last, though. So you need to do you need to see Bill 28 actually repealed before having full confidence that things are actually going to move forward? And we are hearing that the Ford government might be moving to do that next week. Well, of course, we'd much rather see it happen uh, today, tomorrow, the next couple of days. And that's where our our efforts are. Uh, you know, we we stood down picket lines across this province and and there was a commitment that this government would repeal 28. And it took a little while to get the actual facts of what the premier was doing. I think uh, not just myself and our team, but a lot of people were confused by what the actual announcement was from the premier. But we did get it in writing that it is 28, uh, Bill 28, that is being repealed, rescinded, whatever you want to call it, that it's gone on. And, and they're going to frame it so it's like it never existed. And I'm sure that's what Premier Ford, Ford would really like, that he'd never actually brought this forward in the first place. So uh, I know uh, folks are talking about it. The New Democrats and the other parties are are ready to get back to the legislature, I understand, tomorrow um, and to start to work on this. It shouldn't take too long to repeal this legislation, is my understanding. So let's just get that done. Let's just get that bad part of history here in Ontario, get it, get it right out of the province and sit down and negotiate a deal that works for everybody. We've only got about a minute left, but Mr. Hancock, I wanted to ask you, you have to be aware that you didn't have public support from everyone when you held your protest. What do you say to those parents who didn't support your walkouts? Well, of course, we're not going to have everybody's support when, uh, when we, we take action like this. Um, but I can tell you what, we had overwhelming support from parents and uh, Ontarians all across this province. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we want to get a collective agreement. And, and don't forget that our members, those 55,000 members in, uh, in the education sector, as well as the 250,000 members that we have across this province, Many of them are parents as well, and they want what's best for their kids, but they also want a good collective agreement for those education workers. QP National President Mark Hancock, thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mike. So that's what the union had to say. Now let's bring in some of these politicians joining our panel of Ontario MPPs. Patrice Barnes, the Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Education, NDP MPP, Chandra Pasma, and the Interim Leader of the Liberal Party, John Fraser. Welcome to you all. Ms. Barnes, I'm going to start with you. Was this offer to rescind Bill 28 an admission that the new legislation just simply went too far? No, Mike, I think it, we have stuck to the same thing that we've always done, which is we wanted kids in school and we wanted the strike to be over so that kids could return to school. Parents really wanted students back. And so with that, it's always been our aim for students to be in school. So then why not recall the House this week and get this done this week, as some are calling for? Well, the Premier has... Uh, said that he will rescind the bill. Uh, we, the House sits back on Monday, and so we'll be doing that on Monday. But it's still hanging over today. In, in, in Ms. Barnes, I'm just going to say, it's, it's going to be hanging over negotiations tomorrow, isn't it? But they have come to an agreement that the Premier will be rescinding the bill. He said that. They, he spoke with the, the Labour leaders, and they have come to an agreement that the bill is now off the table, and we'll be back on Monday to rescind it. Ms. Pasma, I'm going to bring you in here. What is this walking back of Bill 28 signal to you? I mean, we've seen the PC government fast-track the passing of Bill 28 last week. Does the opposition have no tools to prevent what went down over the last couple of days to, for it to happen again? 
Well, this uh, move today represents a significant victory for everyone who pushed back across the province against this government's bullying of the low paid education workers who support our kids and our schools every single day. This is a significant victory, uh, but it's not done yet. I was out on the protest lines this afternoon talking to workers, talking to parents. There's still a lot of distrust in this government about whether or not they're actually going to do what they said. I think it would be a really strong measure of uh, rebuilding that trust for the government to recall the legislature immediately and repeal this legislation right away. But ultimately, what we really need to see from this government is that they're prepared to come to the table with a reasonable deal with the significant investments that we need in our schools so that kids get the supports that they need and workers can be there every day providing them with those supports without needing to use food banks. And that's going to be the real test here. And New Democrats aren't going to give up the fight until we actually see that happen. Mr. Fraser, I'll bring you in here. I want you to pick up on some of that mistrust that, um, that Ms. Pasmo was talking about. I mean, you had a differing opinion here. Mm -hmm. The government had said that the union walked away from the negotiating table. The union says that never happened. Do you have confidence in this government now to hammer out a deal with these educational workers? Look, I, I think what parents and um, working people have told them, you need, to, you need to hammer out a deal. You need a fair deal. And here's the other problem with Bill 28. The message that Premier Ford sent was to every Ontario worker, is your right to bargain for, for your wages is no longer guaranteed. Other rights are no longer guaranteed. So, you know, it was significant in the impact that it had on these individual workers with trying to impose a contract. But more importantly, it broke trust. And so I can understand why right now uh, there are still many in labor and still parents out there going, I'm not so sure. Let's do this right now. We're prepared to be, go to the legislature and pass this bill quickly. Uh, and the government's got a lot of work to do to build up trust with, um, with working people. That they uh, that they won't have this situation where you know the government holds a hammer over the head and says you know put down your shield your right to strike, but I'm still going to hold up this hammer and uh, you know it's never too late to do the right thing. It's good that this happened today, but the premier and his government have to follow through on what they said today. Ms. Barnes, I'll bring you in on that on that point. There, how is the union supposed to trust your government if they were willing to bring in the notwithstanding clause in the first place? I mean, will this happen in good faith? Uh, the Premier is committed to bargaining in good faith. We've always bargained in good faith. We've always told the unions that we wanted to have students in, in school. Fair, in was, fairness, sorry, just to interrupt. Was, in fairness, people will say that was not in good faith by invoking the notwithstanding clause. In fairness. Well, we, we were at the table with the unions up until Sunday. We tabled an offer on Sunday that the unions decided that they didn't want to accept and gave us notice that they were going to go on strike for Friday. And so that's when the, we did the legislation to try to avert, avert a strike on, sun, on Friday to have students back in class. And we have done that. We have all been at the negotiating table. We've been at the negotiating table for three months um, trying to iron out a deal. We have, um, the, the union has just come down from their 50% ask that they had of 11.7% per year over three years. And when we came in on Sunday, we said we offered, we tabled an offer of 2.5 for those under 43,000 and 1.5 for those over 43,000. And the union re, um, rejected that offer and gave notice of a strike. And it was the, because of the notice of a strike why we put in place the legislation to um, get workers back and students back in class. 
I just want to ask you on, on another subject that we are seeing today involving your premier. He won his court battle today over that summons to testify at the Emergencies, Emergencies Act inquiry. So he's not going to have to testify, but what do you say to people who are claiming that the premier is dodging accountability by not testifying? The Premier has said before in the House, the opposition has asked that this was a federal inquiry uh, done by the federal government and the police in regards to the use of the federal act. And so he has provided, we have provided all the information that was requested, all the documents that were asked for. We've given access to our, our top officials to be questioned. And so we have, we have cooperated with that investigation. Ms. Pasma, I just want to get your reaction. Should he have to testify? Absolutely. The people of Ottawa know that this is a flimsy excuse that the Premier is hiding behind. They lived this day in and day out for 28 days without being able to duck away from it. The Premier owes them one day of answers at a, at a bare minimum. We want to know why the Premier wasn't here, why he wasn't using the tools he had at his disposal to respond to this, and why he won't come and give us answers about it now. Mr. Fisher, you're an Ottawa MPP. Does he owe answers to citizens of the city? Not just answers, but an apology. You know, for two weeks, uh, he failed to act. He chose not to act. Uh, people in this community suffered. Pe people didn't feel safe in the neighborhoods. Businesses shuttered. People lost income. It was a very, very serious matter. And I said earlier, you know, it's not too late to do the right thing. The Premier should do the right thing, appear before the, the inquiry, and apologize to the citizens of Ottawa for not doing what leaders are supposed to do, which is to take action when communities are under threats, especially when one's under siege. John Fraser, Sandra Pasma, Patrice Barnes, thank you all for being with us. I appreciate it. Coming up, though, midterm madness in the U.S. As voters head to the polls, will the balance of power shift in D.C.? We've got reporters standing by in key states to break it all down for you. Stay with us. Power Play will be right back. And on Tuesday night, with your help. You saw what happened last time under my predecessor. The economy left it in ruins. In order to make our country successful, safe and glorious i will probably have to do it again but stay tuned u.s midterm elections are essentially a referendum on the president who's in power and joe biden's ability to move his agenda forward could look very different after these results come in all 435 seats in the house of representatives are up for grabs so are 35 senate seats and 36 governorships so what's at stake for the Democrats? And could a victorious night for the Republicans pave the way for a Donald Trump political comeback? We've got a team of CTV national news correspondents covering the midterms. They're all joining me right now. Washington Bureau Chief Joy Malvin, Washington Correspondent Richard Madden, and CTV News' Los Angeles Bureau Chief Tom Walters. Nice to see you all there. Joy, we're going to start with you. If the Republicans have a big night, what could that mean for Donald Trump? Well, this could be a true test of his power over the Republican Party. But I got to tell you, there's big speculation here tonight. He has been teasing and teasing a very, very probably, probably might have to run 
there's all sorts of speculation. He could actually announce tonight in Ohio. He is stumping for J.D. Vance, uh, one of his hand-picked candidates. And re remember, the other important thing about Donald Trump is he has supported many candidates, many of whom are so-called election deniers, people who question that Biden is the legitimate president and believe Trump's you know, falsehood uh, that the election was rigged against him. So these people will decide future elections. So a lot is at stake in these midterms. It's not just a referendum anymore. Let's head south to Georgia now. That's where we're going to find Richard Madden. Richard, you've watching this tight race between a reverend and a former NFL running back. What's at stake there? Yeah, well, I think uh, to pick up on what Joy was saying moments ago, the path to whichever party wins control of Congress really could run through Georgia. Raphael Warnock is the Democrat incumbent, and he's in a tight, nail-biting race with a former football star, Herschel Warnock, another hand-picked candidate by Donald Trump here in the Peach State. Uh, polls show them neck and neck, so it's really anyone's guess which one wins. But I got to tell you, if you want to talk about issues here, uh, clearly the flailing economy is front and center in voters' minds. And you look at polls, uh, many voters believe it's the Republicans who are best poised to fix it. So we're all bracing to see what happens tomorrow. Remember, this state, Mike, is the one that hand-delivered that razor-thin majority to Democrats in the last Congress. And to use the football cliche this time, it's a whole new ballgame. Yeah, and really, it's fourth and one at this point. So let's head west to the desert. Tom, you've got your eye on Arizona, the state that has crucial Senate races underway. Uh, how close are they there? Well, they're very close. I mean, here in Arizona, Mike, uh, you look at the average today of the latest polling data, and Mark Kelly, the incumbent Democrat uh, in the Senate here, has got a one percentage point lead. So it's a statistical tie. Uh, and of course, with the Senate itself split 50-50, um, it really only takes one or two key races uh, to determine a majority there. Uh, Richard, of course, has a ringside seat to one of those races in Georgia. We've got a ringside seat to another here in Arizona. And right next door in Nevada, there is another squeaker of a race, another incumbent Democrat, another seat Republicans would like to flip, uh, hoping that um, Adam Laxalt can win the Senate seat there over uh, incumbent uh, Catherine Cortez Masto. Now, Joy, all these close races could make for a really long night. In 2020, it took days before we actually got the final results and all of those elections were called. Is that what we're expecting tomorrow night? Oh, yeah. If you think it's election night, I would be calling it election week, uh, maybe even longer than that. Um, you know, Richard, who's in Georgia, they could be facing a runoff that won't even be decided until December. Uh, and, and also think about this. Already there are hundreds of lawsuits questioning these mail-in ballots. You've got that to deal with. You've got, you know, possible chaos at, at some of the polling stations. And there are different rules for different states. It's not like Elections Canada, where, you know, there are certain rules uh, when it comes to counting ballots. And so, you know, some states like Pennsylvania, they don't count, start counting the ballots until the very uh, night. Uh, other states can start processing it earlier. So uh, it could be a long time before we can actually declare who wins uh, control of Congress. I've got about 90 seconds. We're going to try and split it between Richard and Tom. Richard, uh, early voting records. It seems like they're bro breaking records in Georgia. Talk to me a bit about that. 
Yeah, early records. Uh, two and a half million Georgia voters have already cast ballots at advanced polls. That is an all-time record, and that signals that enthusiasm is high here. Georgia is a critical swing state. Voters here know it, and they are casting ballots. One thing I'm watching for very closely, though, is the African-American vote. African-Americans make up more than a third of eligible voters here, uh, but... Black men seem to be disenfranchised. We were at a church service yesterday where the pastor was urging uh, black male voters to go to the polls. And of course, that turnout could make all the difference whether the Democrats win or the Republicans uh, flip this seat and cruise to a razor thin majority. And that's at least according to some polls. Georgia remains a toss up on the Senate side. It's expected the governor is going to win re-election here. But again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the the majority for either the Republicans or the Democrats, it could all go through Georgia. So this is clearly a state to watch. Tom, just to finish with you, President Barack Obama visited Arizona. He warned that democracy as we know it may not survive in that state if Republicans win key offices. Why was that such a dire warning that he issued? Well, because really this state is ground zero for this whole election denial uh, conflict. You've got in this state, the, the Secretary of State, which is the crucial role at the state level, They're the, the Secretaries of State are the Chief Electoral Officers. Here the Secretary of State uh, is up against a full-throated uh, election denial candidate in the gubernatorial race, head-to-head, -head, diametrically opposed, and the rest of the Republican slate here is kind of like the, uh, you know, the three horsemen of the democracy apocalypse. Um, you've got a guy running for Secretary of State who is a uh, self-described oath keeper, and was uh, on Capitol Hill January 6th trying to overturn the results of the last election and now potentially in a position to oversee the next presidential election. Tom Walters, Richard Madden, Joy Malbin, thank you so much for all of this. They will also be back here on News Channel tomorrow. Folks, don't miss it. Special coverage of the U.S. midterm election. We'll have results from key races across the country and analysis from both sides of the border. That's tomorrow on the CTV News Channel. Now here's some other news that you need to know as Ontario backs down on the using of the non-withstanding clause. The Quebec government is pressing on with a law it passed using the same controversial clause. Today, Quebec's top court is hearing appeals on the constitutionality of the secularism law known as Bill 21. Both the province and groups opposing the law are challenging um, an April 2021 court decision that largely upheld the controversial law banning religious symbols in the public service. Bill 21 prohibits public sector, wor sector workers in positions of authority from wearing items like hijabs, kippahs and turbans. Last year, a superior court justice ruled that law has serious and negative impacts on people who wear religious symbols, but the law does not violate the Constitution. A troubling trend heading into cold and flu season. Pharmacies across the country are reporting short supplies of the common children's antibiotic, amoxicillin. The antibiotic typically comes in pill or capsule form for adults and in liquid form for children. Pharmacists say prescriptions for the kids' formula have become harder to fill, with some manufacturers saying they won't be able to fill the supply until January 2023. Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland was on the defensive today, attempting to explain comments she made about budget cutting in her own home amid soaring inflation and rising prices. In an interview with another media outlet, Freeland said, like many families, 
hers is making difficult decisions, like ending their subscription to streaming service Disney+. Plus. She was asked about those comments today. I am paid a, a really significant salary, and I know that that puts me in a really, really privileged position. And I really recognize that it is not people like me, people who have my really good fortune, who are struggling the most in Canada today. Coming up, the stalemate over the Ontario education worker strike is over for now. Will Premier Ford's offer to repeal his controversial back-to-work law ease tensions between his government and Ontario labour unions? We bring in Mitch Himple, a former Director of Parliamentary Affairs for Ford Government, to join our press gallery. It's coming up next on Power Play. Well, most of the country continues to deal with the effects of rolling back the clocks. Yesterday, Ontarians saw another backtrack today. The Ontario government and QP walked back their positions in the education worker dispute and will head back to the bargaining table. It happened after Premier Ford said he was willing to repeal the entirety of Bill 28. That was the controversial legislation which invoked the notwithstanding clause and imposed a four-year contract on education workers. Now, union leaders said protest sites will be collapsed as of tomorrow, allowing for the return of in-person schooling. So, as the standoff thaws, can the relationship between Ford and the unions be salvaged? Let's bring in the press gallery so that they can have a shot at this one. Rob Benzie, he's the Queen's Park Bureau Chief of the Toronto Star, Fatima said. She's the reporter with The Narwhal. And our special guest today is Mitch Himple, a Conservative strategist at Enterprise Canada. He previously worked in the Ford government as the Director of Parliamentary Affairs. Thank you all for being here. Mitch, let's start with you. So did Premier Ford manage to avoid a full-blown labour crisis in this province? Uh, certainly in the short term. Uh, it's good news that kids will be back in class tomorrow. I think that was everybody's ideal uh, end of the situation. The question is just now whether they can get to a deal at the bargaining table. Um, they seemed more hopeful today, I think, probably than they were at any point last week, which is a good thing. Um, but the, we've seen this back and forth between a number of governments over the course of the last 30 years when it comes to the education sector in the province of Ontario. Um, I don't think at any point over the last four bargaining cycles we've gone without a disruption to the school year. So I, I would call it this short-term optimism. How much does that optimism last, considering that he did court a lot of unions um, in the past? And so what does this do to the long-term relationship with those unions? So I think two very interesting things probably stood out today. The first is the the Premier's... Uh, differentiation in his press conference between public and private sector unions, which he made repeatedly. The second, as your folks are sort of seeing right now, is the the show of force on the other side from organized labor at their press conference today. Um, I suspect that everybody will be happy that Bill 28 is being withdrawn. I think that will be a necessary step to the Premier recovering any of the goodwill he had from the campaign with, with some of these organized labor groups. 
Um, a lot of this, though, is likely to come down to uh, Minister Labor Monty McNaughton's ability to pair, repair and rebuild relationships that he successfully put together in the first place. Fatima, I'll bring you in here. So he rescinds the controversial back-to-work legislation. But what signal did all of this send to other unions that the government may be negotiating with in the near future? I mean, the big thing that uh, the premier didn't commit to is uh, whether or not he would use this kind of clause again in, in you know, bargaining uh, conversations moving forward. Um, you know, the question was posed to him very directly and he sort of skirted around the answer. And, and you have to wonder, you know, now that QPN and the government are, are going back to the table, what happens if there's a disagreement again? What happens if they can't meet in the middle or come to some sort of, you know, deal that, that works for both sides? Will the premier invoke it again? He's already invoked the notwithstanding clause three times. And, and the big question is, what does this mean for future bargaining? Rob, what does it mean for future bargaining and specifically his threat or still having the notwithstanding clause in his back pocket and seemingly willing to reach for it? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem for Mr. Ford, Mike, is, is using the notwithstanding clause is like losing your virginity. You can only really do it once. And once you've done it, you're not a virgin anymore. So um, I think uh, his his problem, I mean, he's only used it once. Uh, well, I guess yesterday, uh, last week was the second time. He threatened to use it a third time back in 2018. He didn't end up having to do so. The only time it's actually been part of permanent legislation was uh, was in 2021 uh, on a, a bill eliminating campaign advertising. That, that uh, wasn't a, a big deal during the June 2nd election campaign. I kind of thought it might be because there are a lot of people out there who are very concerned about their constitutional rights and they don't like uh, Section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms being used in this way in Ontario. Ford is the first premier in, in this province to do that. Um, and yeah, Fatima's right. He, if he did it once, he could do it again. And I think that's, that's something he's got to be afraid of, or, or we've got to be wary of. And I think what, but what I think the premier was afraid of, Mike, and, and, and he basically said as much as uh, today, he was very worried about the threat of a general strike uh, a week from today. So this time next week, we could have been talking about a general strike where a lot of unions, and there were eight that supported uh, the Tories in the last election, private sector unions, they would all be on strike. And that's not a good look for a guy who styled himself as a sort of big blue collar machine politician who could appeal to labor, keep appeal to business and have a big tent party. So he blinked as, as, uh, as the uh, head of QP National uh, said today. And I think that it was smart for him to blink because if he hadn't, he would, this thing could have cascaded and it could have been a very, very bad scene. Um, I think we're going to have to leave it there, uh, not only because Rob just talked about losing virginity, but we're actually out of time for this panel. <laughs> I thank you all for being there, Mitch, Fatima, Rob, and, uh, and Fatima. You'll be back later. Remarkably, we're not putting you in the penalty box for that one, Rob, but thank you all. Coming up, the federal government is ready to increase its share of the Canada health transfer, but that money comes with some strings. Are the provinces and territories ready to accept well, we're about to speak to the B.C. Health Minister, Adrian Dix, about that. Yes, we will be there with more money. But we need to make sure that more investments in health care ends up supporting the folks on the front lines, the nurses and doctors delivering that health care to Canadians and ensures that Canadians feel the results of improvements in our health care system.
So there you have it. The federal government says it is ready to increase health care investments through the Canada Health Transfer. That's also according to the Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos, who's in Vancouver to meet with the 13 provincial and territorial ministers, the health ministers. And this comes as the premiers have been pressing the federal government to raise its share from 22% to 35% of total funding for health care. So is this deal, the provinces, the one that they've been waiting for? Well, it comes with some strings attached. Minister Duclos says the federal government will up its share if the provinces are ready to commit to an expansion in sharing of key health indicators to build a world-class data health system for Canada. The premiers renewed their call for that money just last month with an ad campaign, including billboards like this one, blaming the feds. So are the provinces and territories ready to accept the federal government's conditions? Let's find out. Joining me right now is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister Dix, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. So the federal minister is saying hey, that the federal government Mike. is ready. Good afternoon. Thanks again. Minister Duclos says the federal government is ready to increase the Canada health transfer if the provinces and territories are ready to commit to the expansion of health indicators sharing built uh, to build what the government calls a world-class health data system. So is BC ready to accept that offer? Well, uh, we've been waiting uh, for even a meeting on the Canada health transfer for more than a year. As you know, Premier Horgan has uh, raised this issue repeatedly, and the premiers in all provinces of all political stripes have been united on this question of the absolute need to do that. There's been a commitment from the federal government to do this since at least 2015, and a couple of hours ago, seemingly, they indicated their desire to get to, to, uh, to find more uh, money and resources for this. And I think that's good news. We look forward to talking to them about it. I expect that uh, there'll be discussion here, and I'm hopeful there'll be a First Minister's Conference soon on the issue to address the key issues. On the question of data and indicators, there is more data and more indicators in every province today than there's ever been. We have an obligation to provide that, not just to, uh, to uh, the federal government, but to people in all provinces. But with respect to the Canada Health Transfer, it has declined dramatically over the years. We are right now, in our actions, investing in every jurisdiction, in every aspect of health care, well beyond um, the increase in the Canada Health Transfer. So uh, we're... Uh, we're fired up and ready to go if they're interested in to have a serious discussion. But the Canada Health Transfer, that's the way the federal government contributes to a better public health care system in Canada. If they're interested in that discussion, we're interested in talking to them. Well, it sounds like they are. So that's why I'm asking you here again. I mean, if they say that that's one of the key reasons or the, one of the keys to getting that money, and you're saying there's all that data out there. So am I to understand that you're saying, yeah, BC is ready to accept this offer? I'm saying we haven't seen the offer, either the amount of money or any of the details they've made. But we're delighted that they're interested in talking after, really, during what's been a significant healthcare crisis, where we've worked together, especially on COVID-19, a lot over the last three years. But we've been calling on this fundamental discussion of the Canada Health Transfer for 12 months. If they're prepared to come and talk, then we're interested in talking to them. And uh, with great so, respect. Okay, so Minister, uh, but Mike, Minister, uh, I don't want to interrupt. Uh, but I don't want to interrupt, but I also don't have a lot of time with you. I don't want to interrupt, but I also don't have a lot of time with you. So I just want to ask you that if, if that's the only sure. caveat, that's the only string that they're attaching, so then is that fine? Is, is it a done deal here? Uh, we, 
first of all, we haven't actually seen any offer, right? Uh, and a sound bite is not an offer, although it's positive, right? It better, uh, that's one sound bite better than we were at yesterday from each uh, of the Prime Minister and the Federal Minister of Health. Uh, we have been advocating for a national discussion about increasing the Canada Health Transfer, in our view, from 22 to 35 percent for, uh, for uh, years, but especially in a major effort unanimously led for all provinces by Premier Horgan, now Premier Stephenson. So we're up for that. We're up for that discussion. But, but uh, you know, I, I would say, Mike, uh, with great respect to everybody, it's important to see what they have to say in terms of both the amount and the amount of them living up to their responsibilities under the Canada Health Transfer, which have been declining, and what else they have to say. We're ready to talk to them. If they want to meet on Boxing Day at midnight, I'll be there. And I hope you'll be there as well, Mike, uh, Power and Politics that day. I, I look forward to that. I, I can't wait. Power Play will definitely be there. But I wanted to ask you, if they don't, if they fall Power short play, of the 35%. You see, you see I always get that wrong. Yeah, no, uh, we don't right talk about other shows here. Don't worry, here Minister. It's okay. Uh, and I'll make sure that I don't call you by another minister's name as well. But uh, what I was going to say to you is exactly. if, if they do say that, that they will up it to 35% of the Canada health transfer, and that's not just another soundbite, but that's another box for ticking, I mean, is, is that the floor that they have to reach? That's, that would be fantastic news, and I look forward to getting more details from Minister Duclos. But, but uh, here on Power Play, trademarked, uh, and everywhere else, I'd say this, that we're prepared to work and do what it takes to work with the federal government to see that the future of public health care is brighter and that we meet the real challenge and the real crises facing healthcare workers and patients today. So I'm delighted if they want to step up. I know we are as well. Does it have to be unanimous amongst all provinces? What if some of the provinces aren't on the same page here with it? Does it have to be across the board, 13 for 13? You bet. We are united. The provinces reiterated our united position today. It's a source of strength for our country. I think our country can be proud of that. Our provincial governments and, and, represent and I, and a I number asked that, of Minister Dix, parties sorry, across the, the country. Connection's and difficult. we are together. It's difficult to interrupt you, and I apologize for interrupting you, but we saw this with the health care agreements. No problem. They brokered different health care agreements. I'm uh, sorry, with the daycare agreements. They brokered different daycare agreements with different provinces. Are you worried that that could happen here? The provinces are united, and we will be united. We, we are speaking as one today, and I'm very proud of all my fellow provincial ministers of health. We are together, and that is a source of strength, not just for us, but for public health care in Canada, for all the patients and health care workers we serve. Minister Adrian Dix, I appreciate you joining us here on Power Play once again. Have a great night. Hey. It's great to be on the power. That's where you, one team has the person advantage, right? <laughs> it is. It is. Still to come, the feds are willing to put up more cash for health care. Where should those dollars go, though? Does the system need more than just cash? The president of the Canadian Medical Association will join the press gallery panel right after this on Power Play. Welcome back. A crumbling system. That's how Canada's premiers describe the health care system in this country. So will the federal government's willingness to increase the Canada health transfer fix it? 
Today, Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos said the federal government is ready to increase the health transfer if the provinces and territories are ready to play ball and commit to the expansion of health indicators sharing to build up a data system. The Canadian Medical Association has long sounded the alarm on the crisis in the system. So how much money will fix it? Let's bring back the press gallery. Joining me now once again, Toronto Star Queen's Park Bureau Chief Rob Benzi. The Narwhal reporter, Fatima Sayed, and the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Alika Lafontaine. Thank you all for being with us. Dr. Lafontaine, we're going to start with you. I wanted to get your reaction to what we are seeing today, uh, not only with what the government has put on the table, but the reaction from the health ministers. So I, I think it's a positive step. As we know, this is going to be a long journey for Canadians, and that the Intention at the end of all of this is to actually fix patients' problems. So until we see that frontline effect, I think our journey's not done. But at least we've gotten past the point that more money will be coming and we'll start into negotiations on how to spend it. How much of a difference will it make in that in the system? So there's a lot of things that need to change in the healthcare system. If you look for our prescription of hope that was recently put out by the CMA, the Canadian Nurses Association, Healthcare Can. It lists a series of steps, and this is the really challenging thing for Canadians to wrap their heads around, is there's not just money that needs to be poured into their system, but structural reform. You know, we need to lean into collaboration across provinces. Right now we have 13 separate systems that all have their siloed solutions. And I think when you listen to Minister Duclos and the other premiers or the other uh, health ministers responding to, you know, the uh, announcement of new funding, I, I think we're on our way to get there, but we still have a long way to go. Rob, the premiers have been really clear. They said they want money, no strings attached. What are you expecting their reaction to be to this? Well, you know what, Mike, there have to be strings so I, because I, we've seen... Oh, sorry, Dr. Lopez. No, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Mike, I, I, I would say I, I think there have to be strings attached because we've seen this year alone in elections in Ontario and in Quebec, uh, Premier Ford in Ontario, Premier Legault in Quebec, they spent. They had big spending uh, promises to get reelected. Uh, Doug Ford gave a, a billion dollars uh, in free uh, license plate stickers. Uh, Legault gave uh, checks to uh, to voters. Those were politically successful moves. But if you're Justin Trudeau, uh, looking at that from Ottawa, you're going to say, "Well, wait a minute. If you're having challenges uh, funding healthcare, why are you able to spend money on capricious things like this?" So I think that I think there have to be strings. I think. Uh, Queen's Park can live with the strings. I don't know if Quebec City, though, will live with the strings because it's, there's always in Quebec the, the feeling of federal interventionist and, and interventionism, and they don't like that. So I think that's going to be a, a, tougher, a tougher thing for them to deal with. Fatima, what about the public reaction, though? How much of an appetite does the public have to see all this back and forth over health transfers when they're the ones dealing with long wait times and trying to see a family doctor? I mean, none is the short answer. Um, I think, you know, the politicians in this country are facing, you know, a, a decrease in trust right now. We've seen politicians flip-flop. Just look at what happened in Ontario today. Um time and time again and you know more money does not equal more solutions automatically i think what especially when it comes to the healthcare uh industry which has i think you know during the pandemic we learned that politicians were taking a very piecemeal approach to it like oh there's no bed let's try and fix that but also let's not fix it in the long term oh waiting times are long let's try and address that by you know throwing some money or, or fixing this but we have a shortage let's try and license some you know nurses who uh, 
immigrated here with degrees from other countries that have been sitting here for decades and haven't been licensed so far. That kind of approach doesn't work. And in fact, is hurting the healthcare industry. What we re really need now is not just money, but we need to know how that money is going to better the healthcare system so that people aren't waiting seven hours in emergency, so that people aren't, you know, waiting months and months on ends for specialist appointments and surgeries and, and, and so forth. Um, I think what people want to see is politicians working together and this bickering isn't a good sign that that's happening. Dr. LaFontaine, how do you make that happen when you consider there are 13 different provinces and territories? Not everybody has the same needs, yet the money that's coming from the federal government is really targeted to one specific thing. How do you try and get all 13 provinces on the same page to make sure that this deal gets over the finish line? So I, I think there's two things that are really important to acknowledge. The first is, is that the bickering is just part of the process. So we need to travel through the discomfort and conflict so we can get to the other side. The second is that the solutions aren't confusing. We've had many, many reports that have shown exactly what needs to happen over the past couple of decades. We know that solutions like team-based care, integrating virtual care into the in-person care continuum, Pankany and the licensure, you know, changing the way that we incentivize healthcare workers, improving their working environments. All these things have an enormous impact on creating time for patients. And I, I think what the federal government can really do is lean into those solutions. You know, really point out that we are swimming in the same crises right now. And we already know what the solutions are. We just need to make the choice and to start applying them. Can they channel some of the cooperation that we've seen, that we saw through COVID-19? Rob, I'll put that one to you and you're going to get the last word here. Yes, I think they can. And I think, remember, Mike, we got we got a daycare deal, a national daycare deal uh, with 13 different provinces. Okay, Quebec already had its daycare uh, uh, program. So, But it showed that we can't, that the federal government can work with, with uh, uh, premiers of different political stripes to get a deal. I think they can get a deal. And uh, Dr. Lafontaine, Lafontaine is correct. Uh, there is a will to get to some solutions here, I think. Dr. Lafontaine, Rob Benzi, Fatima said, thank you all for joining us on this. We'll watch, obviously, as these discussions will continue tomorrow. The News Channel will have full coverage of that. That is your Power Play Day in politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We will be right back here tomorrow at the same time. Until then, have a great night, everyone.